Good morning, church. May God bless the reading of his word from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. You may be seated. It's been reported by some that during his second exile, Napoleon had a conversation with one of his generals when conversing, as was his habit, about the great men of the ancient world and comparing himself with them, he turned, it is said, to Count Montholon, one of his trusted generals, with the inquiry, can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? The question was declined, and Napoleon proceeded. Well, then I will tell you. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I, myself, have founded great empires. But on what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. As we think about the transformed family, we've been asking questions Mainly, what are the characteristics of that transformed family? And today, I believe the passage will highlight another important characteristic, one that very much correlates with what Napoleon must have been pondering as that picture depicts as he's nearing the end of his life and thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. As we look to Romans 12 and continue gaining our answers from this text, we've learned a few of these components to a transformed family already. Uh, the first of which is that a transformed family lives sacrificially. Second, a transformed family serves exceptionally. And today I believe in our study of the text, we'll conclude that a transformed family loves genuinely. Now, how does a family love genuinely? A transformed family meaning a family comprised of individuals who've been transformed by Jesus Christ and therefore are new creations in Him. According to Ephesians 2.10, masterpieces God has made to do the good works that He has planned for them to do. How would that family go about loving genuinely? This is how our section today begins. In verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is an important statement, one which we'll spend more of our time on than most of the others. It's 
critical to our understanding of what follows. In fact, it would appear as though what Paul is doing is issuing a statement or a command under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then defining what he means by it. He says, let love be genuine. And that word love there in the Greek, there, there were many Greek words that when translated into English, we use the word love. So, you know, we English-speaking people, we use the same word to profess our feelings for our spouse as we do for a sandwich we just enjoyed. Well, I love you, honey. I really loved that sandwich. Now, we know that, you know, because of the nuances and we're accustomed to the language, <clears throat> we know that when one person uses it within the context of a relationship with their spouse and then might use it again as it relates to their feelings regarding a meal, they mean two different things. But if we're not careful, we may not pick up on those differences when we're studying the text of Scripture. And so there were many Greek words one might choose. The one that Paul's using here first is agape. I think the most frequent, frequent use uh, or Greek word used for love in the New Testament. It's the love of God. The unconditional love of God that we just finished singing about. You can't earn it. And you can't lose it. It's not about you. It's about the one giving it. Agape love. Paul says that we need to demonstrate this love, but genuinely. And what he means by that, he is about to explain. What is genuine agape love? Everything else we'll hear from him this morning will elaborate upon that question. And it starts in a very challenging place. As countercultural as it gets. For Paul says, agape love means loathing evil and loving good. That his first description of agape love is that we hate something. That sounds strange. Strange to us in this room, even stranger to those outside of the family of God. For often, the two are antithetical to one another. Love and hate. But in this specific case, if we are to agape others genuinely, there is something we will hate. And God says, that is evil. We live in a culture today that quite honestly insists that we love what God has called evil, that we affirm it, that we celebrate it. We must not. Not if we are to agape love those very same people. Agape love will require that we do the very thing they're asking us not to do. It'll be misunderstood, misrepresented, but it's a position we're called to take nonetheless. Over the years, I've come to just appreciate so many people that God is using to teach others, including myself. And the reason I like referencing so many of these people when I have the privilege of teaching God's word from here is because I'm inviting you in 
to some of these same resources and hoping that, that you'll find them as useful as I have. This is a team effort. You know, no, no man or woman is an island. And so I encounter a lot of great resources in my ministry. And, and what I like to do when I speak on any given Sunday is to show you my card, so to speak. I'm just going to tell you who's been impactful in my study time, in my growth. And one of those people, his name is Tim Barnett, who is a, uh, among other things, works with a ministry called Stand to Reason, which is a ministry I highly recommend to everybody in this room. It's a Christian apologetics ministry. Uh, they're led by Greg Kukul, who wrote a fantastic apologetics book called Tactics. Tim works with Greg and others as part of this ministry, but he also had, is doing some of his own work and it started, once upon a time, on Twitter. He would capture tweets that people would put out on social media. He would take a digital red pen and mark it up, correcting it as it were, and then he would post the corrected version of that tweet. And he became known as uh, Mr. Red Pen. He then started a YouTube channel called Red Pen Logic with Mr. B., Mr. Barnett. I'm going to show you uh, what he does a lot of times now on that YouTube channel. He will present to you something that someone is saying that's wrong. And then, digitally speaking, he'll have his red pen in hand, if you'll notice, and he'll suggest some adjustments or modifications that need to be done to what that person is sharing. And all's fair in social media. These people are posting out in public, and he's simply responding to what they have to share in public. But what I appreciate about Tim is he does so respectfully, intelligently. Uh, he's not uh, stirring up conflict needlessly. He's simply responding to things that people are sharing to the world. In this case, what you're about to see is a self-identified progressive Christian uh, who is wearing uh, the collar of a clergy, for what it's worth, and she's responding to a comment someone had made, and the comment was this, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Now, this is a sentiment most of us are familiar with. If you'll notice, Tim will allow her to speak, and then he'll respond. And in his response, he will first critique that slogan. And it's a critique I happen to agree with. If we aren't careful as Christians, we can get into sloganeering which is not the same as gospel sharing. And so it's what I appreciate about Tim is he's willing to address that first. He kind of starts with the household of God, so to speak, and then he'll address the sentiment shared by the person in this video. So let's take a look at it together. When I, I got into the habit of sharing one of these with my Bible classes every week uh, as a way to just get class started, and uh, at the end of the year, I was talking with one of my classes, one of my larger classes, and I, you know, I asked them, you know, of all the variety of ways in which I started Bible class this year, what, it, what, what did you find most helpful to you? Overwhelmingly, it was those. And what that tells me is, uh, you know, families, we have children and grandchildren that are desperate to hear how the Bible addresses the issues that they're facing today. And uh, I, I recommend Tim and his red pen logic as a resource to you. But he brings us to this issue, uh, Paul does, objective morality. How so? When he says, 
evil and good. Abhor, meaning hate or loathe. Hold fast is language uh, that's also used in the New Testament to describe a marital union between a husband and wife. You know, embrace your wife. Yeah, you ought to embrace good like that. There's passion, there's emotion. But when he talks about good and evil, these are objectively stated things. Paul is saying that what's evil is not what you think is evil, and what's good is not what you think is good. What, e- what is evil and good is that which God has said is evil and good. Objective to how you think or feel about the situation. Something is, does, does not become true because you agree with it. That's another issue in our culture and many of our churches today. Well, I don't like that. That doesn't mean what you just heard is untrue. These things are objective to us, and that's what we call objective morality or absolute truth. It's a standard that God has given to us that we're to respond to and live by, not to make up on our own. In fact, there are many places in Scripture that assume that this is true. Galatians chapter 5 is one of them. Galatians chapter 5, if you'd like to join me there. Uh, This is a passage most familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. But Paul draws a contrast in this passage between the fruit of the Spirit and something else. Starting in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The contrast setting up is that which is good and that which is evil. For the desires of the flesh, that which is evil are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Your flesh is trying to keep you from doing what the Spirit wants you to do, and the Spirit's trying to keep you from doing what the flesh wants you to do. But in verse 18, it says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. There's freedom here for you to reject the desires of your flesh and follow the leadership of the Spirit to cooperate with His work in your life. But he goes on to describe now what the works of the flesh are. In verse 19, he says they're evident. They're things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things are what God has said are evil. And he starts that list first with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual behavior that deviates from God's design for it. God's design for sexual behavior, human sexual behavior, is to be between one man and one woman within the context of a covenant marriage. Anything outside of that, anything outside of that design is sexual immorality. Now, because of the whatever might be trending in our culture, we might like hyper-focus on one specific form of sexual immorality, but if we're not careful... We're not drawing people into the whole truth, which is that the rules are the same for everybody. Uh, Whatever that activity is, if it's outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage, it it deviates from God's standard and therefore it's sexually immoral. And God sets that standard. God defines that as something that is evil, as opposed to what's good, which Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 5 and says, But the fruit of the Spirit, that which is good, is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so he, he, he gives us a contrast, but, but undergirding that is an assumed truth, that these are not man-made concepts. This, the, this was a standard delivered to Paul to share with you and me. Objective, absolute standard. C.S. Lewis, probably the most famous Christian apologist, and by apologist I mean someone who gives a defense of their belief, and in this case C.S. Lewis gave a defense for his Christian belief, wrote a book called Mere Christianity in which he talks about his journey from being an atheist to a Christian. And he says this in his book, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Sorry for the misspelling there. But you understand what he's saying. He thought to himself, what makes me think there's such a thing as just and unjust? I need a standard to compare it to. And God used that line of thinking in C.S. Lewis's life to bring him to a knowledge of the truth. So there is an issue where externally there is evil in the world and we must stand against it. If we're going to agape love other people, we are required to do this. To not champion evil or affirm it or celebrate it, but to oppose it. Now, should we distinguish between the act and the person? Yes. Jesus did. Again, Tim referenced the woman at the well. You go to that account, you don't get the sense that Jesus treated her harshly in any respect. In fact, was very gentle and patient and, and compassionate with her, yet he spoke the truth to her, yet he drew her awareness to her sinful condition and need for a Savior, because love requires both. So he gave us the example for this, and it's an example that we're expected to follow. We are to speak the truth, yes, but, but Paul says in one of his letters that we should season our speech with grace. It's not enough just to say that which is true. It is also important how we say it. The Bible commands us to do both, to care about what we say and how we say it. I would warn you against people who focus only on one or the other. There are those who say it's the truth, just speak the truth, and that's all that matters. And there are those that say that, that overly focus on how we say it. Both those camps are problematic. Jesus calls us into the tension between the two. It's not easy, but he equips us to do it. But as important as the battle out there is, there's a more important one when it comes to our relationship and hatred of evil, and that is the battle within. And this is where, if we're not careful, we get in our own way and oftentimes tarnish the reputation of Christ and his kingdom with an unbelieving world. When we focus on the evil out there and ignore the evil in here and in here, we don't do anyone, let alone Jesus Christ, any favors. And the world can see that as well as anybody if we are hypocritical. And there's too much of that. Professed Christians who would, in a moment's notice, 
put something inflammatory on a poster and join a parade opposing an evil, but neglecting a host of evil things going on in their own life. That should never be true of a follower of Christ. James even speaks to this fact in James chapter 1, talking about temptation, starting in verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's James saying? Our greatest problem with evil is in ourselves. It's in our own hearts and minds. It's in our own desires. That's where the battle ought to rage the most. That's where our efforts need to be the most ferocious against evil is in our own life, in our own families, in our own homes. Is there evil that ought to be opposed out there? Absolutely. But if we, have fail, if we fail to battle against the evil within, then our efforts out there will never bring about the fruit of the kingdom. Commenting on this subject, John Piper said, Don't make the mistake of saying the evil I cherish only hurts me, as some might claim, this little evil thing in my life. And so it is not unloving to others. That's absolutely false. See 1 John 5, 2. You were made to display the worth of Christ to others. That is what is good for them. That's what it means to love them. But if you do things to yourself that damage your delight in Christ and your display of Christ, you sin against others and not just yourself. You rob them of what God made you to give to them. So I say again, love for others must hate evil because evil hurts others directly, and evil hurts others indirectly by hurting you. Evil obscures the beauty of Christ, and Christ is our greatest good, our greatest joy. If we're tolerating evil in our own lives or in our own homes, in our own families, we're obscuring the beauty of Christ to a watching world who desperately needs to see it. That's where the battle must be won first. Going back to Romans chapter 12, now that we understand that, that to love genuinely, to demonstrate true agape love means to hate what is evil and cling to what is good as God has defined them, he goes on to say in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. He now moves to a different Greek word for love, which is a word where we get brotherly love from phileo. He says another aspect of, of loving others genuinely is to love others in a brotherly way by honoring them, by putting them above ourselves. Last week, we looked at this at length. This week, I'll just quote a couple verses from Philippians chapter 2, which again says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. One of the things that I like, a word that I use to describe what this is talking about is deference. To defer to the other person. 
You know, maybe let them have their way once in a while, you know. Let them get the honor. Let them get the credit where it's due. Let them have the spotlight. Celebrate their achievements. Implement their ideas. Consider their preferences. Show honor to other people. This is how we're to relate to one another, brothers and sisters. We are to be going about seeing how we can honor one another. That is what agape love will do. Going on into verse 11, Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. A family loves genuinely by exhibiting the faith with excitement. It's true. In fact, the word zeal there means bubbling up. Uh, picture illustration. You put a pot of water on the active stove burner. You expect at some point in time to start seeing bubbles, right? It's getting hot. Pretty fervent in there. A lot of intensity. And for some of us, it takes a whole lot longer for that to happen than we would prefer because we'd like to eat. And it's very exciting once we see those bubbles. Because we know we're getting close. Those of us who have been transformed by Jesus ought to be seeking to serve him in our relationships with others with, with excitement. And it's not an excitement that draws attention to ourselves. It's an inner excitement, an inner enthusiasm or zeal for just gladly doing what God has called us to do. This idea of honoring others Gladly and with great effort and energy and enthusiasm seeking to do that. Not for attention or fame, but just to honor the Lord as a living sacrifice to him. And, and, and if we're not careful, right, we, we, some of us might be sitting here thinking, oh man, you know, we start talking about excitement or enthusiasm, you know, where this is headed. But I agree with uh, Douglas Moo here in his commentary on Romans. He says, It's not the enthusiasm of self-centered display, such as characterized by the Corinthians, but the enthusiasm of humble service of the Master who bought us that the Spirit creates within us. I mean, there is. There is an issue with some who so value external excitement and make Christianity to be all of that, that there's a disingenuous to it, right? Disingenuousness. When we gather for worship, for instance, we ought to do this with, with great enthusiasm and excitement, but not so that the attention of others would be drawn off of God and onto ourselves. But we should excitedly eagerly be seeking to serve others this way verse 12 paul says rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation constant in prayer to agape love to, to demonstrate that clearly to a watching world and to the others in the family of god re acknowledges that there are going to be hard times in this christian life and that's what paul's inviting us into now Rejoicing in hope kind of carries with it the idea of perseverance. Agape love perseveres. When times get hard, 
Agape love doesn't abandon ship. When, when, when conflict enters into a relationship, agape love does not give up on that relationship. We persevere. And he gives us two ways to do that. One, with patience. One of the fruits of the Spirit. This trial we're going through, this difficulty, it's not going to operate on our timetable. It's operating on God's. And so we lean on the work of the Spirit in our hearts and minds to help us persevere through this hardship patiently. That we might rejoice even in that hardship because of the hope that we've been given in Christ. And then he says that we ought to do it in prayer. Be constant in prayer. And the concept of prayer is one that I I continue to believe is just not showcased enough in our churches and, and just in Christian circles in general. And it, it, it's, it's one of the most valuable tools we've been given, and I believe it's one of the most underutilized ones that we put into practice. Families, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you, are, are your homes, is your life saturated by prayer? And, and tr- traditions are good, like, you know, you know, our families might pray before a meal, that's great, but is there more? When our children or grandchildren come home from a difficult day at school because of, a, of a, an experience with a test or a, a conflict in a relationship, is our first reaction to go to prayer. Uh, when, when issues arise in the home and, and tempers are running short, do we go to prayer? When we hear that there are others who are hurting and, and going through difficulty, do we pray? How constant is our prayer life? So important to the Christian life is prayer that Jesus himself modeled it for us. If you'd like, you could join me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, Jesus says, Beware. Of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus, as he did so often, knew and understood the language of his time and wielded it for his purposes. So in Jesus' time, the word hypocrite was not necessarily negative. It was an actor, as I'm sure many of you know. It's their word for actor. There would be these actors on the street corners and perhaps they would slip on a mask and pretend to be somebody else. And in response to their performance, they might get a little applause or a little bit of money. That was their reward. But that was it. Once the show's over, the crowd would disperse and they'd have to come up with a new routine. And everyone knew that the person behind the mask was not the person they were portraying when the mask was on. Jesus, wielding that term, suggested there were some in the religious community who, when they went about giving to people's needs, did so very publicly, drawing much attention to their generosity. And therefore might get a pat on the back or, oh, how generous you are, you know, good on you. 
And Jesus is saying, that's all the reward they're going to get. But if your reward, if you desire for your reward to come from God, then you do things discreetly. Keep the attention on him and off of yourself. And God sees what you do in secret. He sees those good deeds, brothers and sisters. And one of the most amazing things that I've seen over the years in this church is how quickly people will mobilize, for instance, when there's a family that needs meals. A flurry of activity almost immediately to meet that family's need during that time. My family's been the beneficiary of that on a couple of different occasions. No fanfare, no spotlights. We don't, we don't put the names up on the screen of everyone who contributed to the meal train this past week to give them a round of applause. But God sees it. And he rewards it. But on this same subject, he goes on to say this in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, God in the flesh, whose mission it was to save mankind from eternal darkness, saw the necessity of prayer. And the many times in his earthly ministry would step aside to do so and considered it so important to you and I that he would give us an example to follow. On this subject, Pastor Alistair Beggs says, In our Christian pilgrimage, there is arguably nothing more important or more difficult to maintain than a meaningful prayer life. But here is help. If Jesus, the divine Son of God, needed to pray, then so do you and I. That humbling thought should drive us to our knees. And once there, we can freely employ the Lord's Prayer as an aid in our own prayer. God has given you the, greatest, the great privilege of approaching Him in prayer and addressing Him as Father, he stands ready to listen and to help. Be sure to treat prayer as a holy habit and never as an optional extra. So let me ask you again, families, does prayer saturate your homes? One of the greatest gifts we can ever give to our children or grandchildren is to invite them into our own prayer life. Mom and Dad, if you're going through difficulty, pray about it, but let your children be in the room to hear. Let them hear your pleas with God so they can learn what that kind of relationship with him looks like. Invite them into those moments. Cherish those moments as a family. You don't have to get super specific about everything when they're in the room, but I hope that on occasion you're inviting them into that time. So we finish up today's text, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
hospitality, meeting the, meeting the needs of others. It was such an important characteristic of the Christian life that Titus includes it as a requirement for an elder. What's it, what I find interesting about this is um, when we think of hospitality, I think many of us rightly think of like, you know, having someone over for a meal. In fact, that's the context I'm going to use here. But what's interesting is that it would be included in a list of what's required of a man in order to be seen fit as an elder. I think sometimes we, we, we mistakenly categorize certain, um, you know, spiritual gifts or, or, or characteristics of a Christian into like masculine and feminine categories. And so, so when we hear the word hospitality, some of us might think, oh, the, so we're talking about what the women are doing. <laughs> this is for everybody, folks. Fathers in the room, you ought to be at the helm of leading your family in hospitality ministry. You ought to be making phone calls and inviting people over to your house, generating those conversations, getting people around your table, rallying your family to the hospitality cause. That's on you. And it ought to be the feature of any of us in this room who follow Christ as Lord. Peter would echo its importance in 1 Peter chapter 4 that it's something that ought to be demonstrated clearly in a Christian's life. The idea of hospitality has become so uncommon, although it's ordinary. But because it's become uncommon, it's now seen as something radical to do. Rosaria Butterfield seems to agree in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Again, brothers and sisters of Christ, we are, owner, we are owners of nothing, stewards of everything. Our homes are not our own. Our couches, our TVs, our ovens and tables, they've all simply been entrusted to you to use for him. He gets to tell you how to use them, and he has. Do you see these things that way? And it might mean things get broken on occasion. There may have been times we've had families over to our own house over the years, and there have been Casualties of war. Rackets that can no longer be used for their intended purpose because they might have been used for something other than their intended purpose. But if it's God's, and it was used the way he told us to use them, it was well used. We can't take these things with us anyway, so we might as well use them for something that matters. Rosaria goes on to say, practicing radically ordinary hospitality necessitates building margin time into the day, time where regular routines can be disrupted but not destroyed. This margin stays open for the Lord to fill, to take an older neighbor to the doctor, to babysit on the fly, to make a room for a family displaced by a flood or a worldwide refugee crisis. You know, again, if Jesus is Lord of our life, that means he's, among other things, Lord of our time. 
So as we make our schedules, brothers and sisters and families, are you leaving him space? Or are we scheduling our lives into the margins? Are there spots in our schedule where we've agreed as a family, as we've, as we've talked about what we're going to commit to, we're just going to let God fill this time? I know some of, make, that makes some of you really nervous. But when needs arise, when someone needs a meal or encouragement or ministry of some kind, are we too busy? Busy, busy, busy. We say it like it's a good thing. We say it like people should applaud our busyness, a badge of honor. When in reality, it's often a thief for ministry opportunities. And the only ones losing are you and me. Are you creating time to be hospitable? And by the way, he says, seek to show hospitality, not simply be ready to show it when it comes along. Are you seeking out people to be hospitable to today? You're surrounded by people, many of whom you don't know, not super well. Maybe today's day we go beyond the head nod and we break bread with them and show them hospitality. A transformed family loves genuinely, and it does so by loathing evil and loving good honoring others, exhibiting the faith with excitement, persevering with patience through prayer, and seeing the needs of others and satisfying them. Let's go back to that island where Napoleon was exiled. He is said to have gone on to say this, I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would die for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, of my words, of my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lighted up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man towards the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends or a father of his children or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love towards him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time. The great destroyer is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. 
This is it which strikes me most. I have often thought of it. This is it which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. The love of his people. And their willingness out of that love to give everything he demands they give. Could it be that our clearest way to share the gospel with an unbelieving world is to love them this way? Agape love. God has defined it for you. It is now for you to embrace or deny. I'd like to close our time together a little differently than I have been. I'm presenting this text to you in the King James for a reason. 1 John 4, 7, 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the same word for love in this text in 1 John is agape. If we don't love this way, we don't know God. But if we do know God, this is exactly how we'll love. I'm presenting it to you in the King James because that's how I learned it growing up, particularly when it was put to music for me. And I'd like you to sing it with me to close our time together, but I'm going to share it with you first. I'm going to step outside of my comfort zone here. I'm going to sing it to you one time, and then you've got to, you've got to jump in. It goes something like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. All right, can you join me? All right, let, let's, sing, let's sing this together as we close our time. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, First John 4, 7 and 8. You are dismissed.